And now Bishop Chip uh, as coordinator for men's ministry in the Anglican Diocese of South Carolina. Tonight I'm going to be talking to you about how men's ministry, as I mentioned, 40 years, has impacted my life unexpectedly, as you'll hear in a minute, Uh, but not only my life, but my marriage, being a father, being a, a, a leader in the church, and uh, beginning in 1999, full-time coordinator for men's ministry in two dioceses. Uh, Then I want to focus our attention for a few minutes uh, on two essential elements that you need to develop a sustainable men's ministry in the life of this church or any church. And then I'm going to finish with uh, asking you to do some work on your own. On your tables, there is a a, a card stock uh, sheet that has areas to write notes on. There's some things there that I've included that I wanted you to think about and remember. Um, Anyway, we'll we'll go over those in just a minute. Next slide. This is the model that the, the diocesan men's ministry leadership team has put together over the last three or four years. And this really is a model uh, that we want to invite our churches to, uh, to, to take hold of. Um, and as you can see, it, it's, it's um, a, a movement um, from the church around that, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit more detail, but it, it goes around, and it, the focus is faith in the home. Um, and, and this is just a little background about why this has been so significant in my life. Well, who am I? Um, I've been married to Laura for 43 years. We have five children, John, Philip, Edward, William, and Olivia. We have four precious daughter-in-laws, Micah, Hannah, Marie, and Carolyn, and we have six and a half grandchildren. Um, I've had three uh, careers in my life. Uh, I owned an art gallery in Atlanta, Georgia that specialized in 20th century fine art photography. I then moved into the investment management business for 15 years. And then in 1999, I was called out of the private sector to join Bishop John Lipscomb's staff in the Episcopal Diocese, Southwest Florida, as coordinator for men's ministry, which I did for 12 years. I have lived east of the Mississippi for my entire life. I have an undergraduate degree in economics and an MBA in finance. Um, And that's just a little background on me at the moment. But I began in Lima, Ohio in 1949. I'm 73 years old. So the first thing I want to point out to you is I grew up in a Christian home, Presbyterian church. And um, we went to church every Sunday. And I will be eternally grateful to my parents that they ingrained that discipline in my life, which has been part of who I am for most of my life. It was not what I would call a spiritual, spiritually vibrant home. Um, Sunday was the day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday was something else. Um, but we did, did go to church. I went to confirmation because Karen Copeland was there. Um, yuck. <laughs> When I was 16, I walked into our TV room, and my parents were watching a Billy Graham crusade. And so 
I'd never heard him, I didn't even know who he was. Um, I sat down and listened to him, and he described Jesus Christ in a way I had never heard him described before. Billy Graham was passionate about him. He was convicted about who he was and what he did for us. And as you may know, at the end of every one of his crusades, he has an altar call. I was watching him on TV, but figuratively, I came forward and made a commitment to follow Jesus Christ. So I sent my 25 cents off in the mail to Billy Graham organization and started to get materials from him, uh, which was very exciting. Um, but it didn't stick. I mean, I, I still con- was convicted about following Jesus, but I didn't have a mentor. Um, the church really wasn't set up at that point in time, I guess, to have mentors. Um, I was a little surprised my parents didn't wonder why I was getting all this material from Billy Graham, but um, I, didn't have, um, I didn't have a mentor. I decided to follow Jesus. That was a conviction I had, but I wanted to do it my way. As Frank Sinatra sang, I did it my way. It was a mess. It was a mess. Um, I just wandered through my 20s. As some of you in your 70s know, it was 60s and 70s was social upheaval. Um, It was crazy. In 70s, it was free love, and what single man doesn't want to participate in that? Um, But it was was a disaster. when I was 30, Laura and I had just gotten married. Uh, we stepped into Northside United Methodist Church in Atlanta. I was an unformed Christian man. Laura had given her life at a Young Life event when she was 18, so she was much more grounded than I was. But I stepped into Northside United Methodist Church, and they had developed an intentional men's ministry for unformed Christian men. Me. So with fear and trepidation, I stepped into what they had created in the life of this church and walked with them for three years. And it was transformational. Um, In my life, because I was now in the formation process, and um, I began to understand what it meant to be a godly father, a godly husband, a godly business owner, a godly leader in the church. It was transformational. I became passionate about men's ministry because of what happened there. When I was 40, we moved to Sarasota, Florida, uh, and we ended up walking into, because a new friend had invited us, to Church of the Redeemer. No denominational distinctive, but it was an Episcopalian church. I had never been in an Episcopalian church before, but we were captured by the sacraments and the liturgy. It was a little difficult then. We had four boys. And, and you guys may remember, it was a prayer book in the, the uh, uh, Book of Common Prayer. I mean, the hymnal, and you were just juggling these back and forth, and it was a little daunting for us initially, but we caught on. I hadn't been there more than six months, and I went to the rector of the church, Jack Eicher, who became very well known as the Bishop of Fort Worth. Uh, and I asked him about starting a men's Bible study because there wasn't one there. He said, absolutely, let me help you get it started. So with his help, we launched the Friday Men's Prayer Breakfast in 1988, and it continues today. The 90s were just an amazing decade for men's ministry. Promise Keepers was spectacular. The stadium events and the training they did, 
just increased my knowledge and understanding about how to develop a sustainable men's ministry in the life of the church. This is all teamwork, guys. I did not do it alone. Fantastic men stepped up. We launched the men's conference in the diocese, similar to the men's conference here. And it, it was just a, a very special time. Um, in 1999, the bishop then, John Lipscomb, invited me to lunch, and that's when I was invited to join his staff as his coordinator for men's ministry. After prayer and consultation with my rector and the bishop, it was indeed a call, or with John Lipscomb, it was a, a calling that I, that I had. So off I went to work for him out of the private sector. When I was 50, next slide please. When I was 50, um, my oldest son, John, was 13. He's the 6'4 guy on the left there. Um, I'm not 6'4. Um, I had really been an intentional dad, um, zero to 13. I mean, I took my sons to see the world, to, to learn about the world, to experience things. We went to church. Uh, I prayed with them. I, I prayed for them. Uh, Laura and I were very involved in the church with their growing up in the church. But when he turned 13, I kind of came to a crossroads. I just really wasn't sure how to then move into a, a process for a teenage son. So I did some research. This was in probably 1993, 94. I did some research. The internet was not available at that point in time. And I discovered some things about how to disciple uh, a teenage boy. But the thing I settled on was rites of passage. Uh, rites of passage in the Old Testament is a significant focus. I didn't know much about it. I knew anthropologically that it took place in many countries. Uh, so I did the research and I cut and pasted a three-year rite of passage process. And we took off. They, it would be monthly meetings with my son, John. Um, we did a life issues weekend away. We went to Ohio where I was born, and we went to where my ancestor lived to give him a sense about his place in the history of our family. Went to the college campus where I went to give him a flavor for that. We talked about relationships with girls, college. It was just amazing. The culmination of that process was when he was 16, uh, I invited uh, eight men from the church to, to come to dinner and um, inform them that it was my desire that they serve as mentors for John. And uh, the culmination of the dinner, well, they came, John was there, I was there, of course. Each man gave a talk about their faith life. These guys were as nervous about doing that as they were on their wedding day. Because, for the most part, men have not had the opportunity to do that. John gave his talk about his faith journey to that point, as did I. When we finished, uh, I invited John to step away from the table, and uh, the eight men came around him and laid hands on him and prayed for him. And then, as his father, I prayed the blessing on him that Jesus received from his dad, when he came out of the Jordan River. This is my beloved son with who I am well pleased. It was transformational in my relationship with Don, John. It was transformational with my relationship with Philip, with Edward, with William. There is a mystery and power to that rite of passage. Um, I was privileged to uh, be able to do that with uh, 
other young men, uh, other dads and sons uh, over the years, but it was, uh, it was transformational. And I learned this much. Every man is waiting to receive the Father's blessing. And that's not always possible today. But at events that we do, Behold the Man in particular, which I'll tell you about in a minute, we offer men that opportunity to have a surrogate, surrogate father bless them. Next slide. Ben Phillips, Rick Bruce have been with me on this amazing trip. Again, what, what I'm trying to show you, explain to you visually and, and with words, is how impactful an intentional men's ministry has been in my life, in my family's life, in my fathering, um, and how God just works through passionate people. I had the privilege to go on my pilgrimage in 2009. It was a gift. And I had never really thought about going to the Holy Land. It's 5,500 miles away. It's seven times difference, zones difference. And it's in the Middle East. But this was a gift that I couldn't turn down. I went, and for those of you who've been, it is amazing experience to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. <laughs> Lee Jones has been twice. Um, to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, to be where he lived, where his ministry was, where he was buried, was, where he was re resurrected. It's just an overwhelming experience. I came back and I encouraged my wife, Laura, to go again, go in 2010, and I joined her. But during that year, God was placing this big, holy, audacious vision in my heart about leading men on their pilgrimage. Guys, this is not like going to Camp St. Christopher for a weekend. I mean, this is, it's a big deal, which I had no knowledge about how to do this. When we were there in 2010, I went to the course director and I asked him if he could help me develop a men's pilgrimage. By the time we left, Father Andrew Mays had put together a 12-day men's pilgrimage. I went back home and went to my church and 12 men stood up and said they wanted to go. So we launched it in 2011. In 2012, we began to partner with the Anglican Diocese of South Carolina. And today that partnership continues. And let me point out, it's an Episcopal diocese working with an Anglican diocese, um, a very important relationship. Our daughter, Olivia, arrived in a most unusual way. Next slide. When our youngest, William, graduated from high school and went off to college, Laura and I prayed that we would do whatever God called us to do. He had blessed us so remarkably in terms of the four boys and, and raising them and the church we belong. I mean, it, it, we were just showered with blessings. And so we said, we'd do whatever he called us to do. And we set that God phone aside. It rang two years later. Um, Olivia, in the eighth grade, visited us for spring break. We knew a little bit about what was going on in her family, but she described it in great detail that it was an incredibly toxic environment. Her mom and dad, Laura's brother and wife, were waging a marital civil war. And she didn't think in the eighth grade that she was going to thrive as a high school student, as a teenage girl in that environment. 
Now, Laura got that before I was brought into the conversation. Um, so we decided together that she could come for a year. Um, she arrived as a nun, N-O-N-E, no faith background. She had been baptized as a baby, and that was the last time she was in church. Didn't have a Bible, didn't know anything about Scripture or really the story of who Jesus Christ is. We put our disciple-making hats back on. Again, disciple-making hats that I learned about because the church we belonged to had an intentional men's ministry, how to be a disciple-maker. Um, <clears throat> so we took her to church. We prayed with her. We prayed for her. I put the Lord's Prayer on her mirror. She went to youth group. She went to Young Life. In June of 2012, at a, at a Young Life uh, camp, she gave her life to the Lord. She had, was convicted that she could trust God. She is an amazing Christian today and a wonderful evangelist. So, um, today at 73, I, I feel like Caleb uh, in the Old Testament. Um, in Joshua, uh, after Moses has died, remember that Caleb, along with Joshua, were the only two that came back into the Holy Land and gave the right story about what was going on there. At that point, Moses had promised uh, Caleb land in the promised land. It took 45 years for him to collect. But his commitment was he was going to take that mountain. And that's my attitude about men's ministry. I am going to continue to take that mountain um, of men's ministry for as long as I live. Let me point out, too, from my own personal experiences over the past 40 years, including the 25 years I've spent in men's ministry leadership, I've come to this conclusion, Roger. I believe one of the primary responsibilities of the church is to form the disciples who are already in the church, intentionally form them, men and women. Uh, it, it just seems to me to be a, an essential element to what churches are all about. However, and this is, is the case in many churches, without that intentional men's ministry, for men in particular, um, they go one, perhaps one of two directions. This is their ultimate goal. One option, ushers. That's a high calling being an usher, right? Or they become pew-sitting, bless me, sponges. That's not very exciting, guys. Um, another uh, unintended consequence, that being one, that men are just not involved, engaged at any level, um, of, of neglecting the formation of men, according to David Murrow in his book, Why Men Hate Going to Church, some men today fear church. He lists a few fears to highlight the panic that may grip a man if he's invited to church. Lee? Oh, next. I think it's one more. I'll hate church like when I was a kid. I'll lose control. If I become a Christian, I'll become soft. I'm invited to pray with a group of guys, and then I may have to hold hands. Christian men don't get sex. Sadly, guys, sorry. I'm afraid of heaven. 
an eternity of sitting on a cloud and playing a harp. But my attitude with, all, with that background is onward Christian soldiers. That is our calling. In 2012, I was invited to Neshota Seminary in Neshota, Wisconsin to lead a seminar for seminarians on men's ministry. Before we jumped into the teaching part of the weekend, I asked those 20 seminarians if they would write on a three by five card what their expectations were. So they did that. Lee? Here are just a few of their comments. I would like a deeper insight into how to reach out to men. How, do men's, how does men's discipleship work? How do I provide an environment in the church where men want to participate? I want to be better equipped to minister to men. I want to learn about healing the father wound for myself and other men. This gathering in 2012 was, uh, turned out to be beyond what I expected, um, both in terms of the seminarians and their feedback about men's ministry and life of the church. That was 11 years ago. And it was encouraging to me um, about what they were attempting to achieve through a weekend seminar. After that weekend, I came back to Sarasota where I was living and began to go through the weekend and what had happened and the expectations they had. And I shared this with a friend of mine, Todd Menke. And Todd said, Jay, you've been doing this for so long that you can answer those questions. Why don't you write a book? <coughs> So I did, and it was published in 2013. Lee? Isn't he good? Isn't he good or what? Men in the church. Men in the church, is there a future? Um, It is a playbook, a field manual for how to develop a sustainable men's ministry in the life of the church. And a model, as we sh- I showed you at the very beginning, that, that rotation, that flywheel that we developed, for men in the church to go forth together. In my book, I start off identifying the two essentials that I mentioned earlier for developing a su- successful men's ministry. The first essential is a definition of authentic manhood, which will overshadow the confused state of affairs of masculinity today in our culture. Last week, for some reason, I tuned in a TV, uh, the news, and the vice president's husband, Camilla husband's, Harris's husband, was on being interviewed, and out of the blue, he said, you know, it is time for us to remove toxic masculinity in America. What's he talking about? I mean, it's just unbelievable. But that has just become ingrained in our culture. The only place we can change that is through the church. We want to proclaim the biblical model for authentic manhood. Next slide. Jesus' model was to reject passivity, to accept responsibility, to lead courageously, and expect the greater reward, God's reward. Jesus is sometimes referred to as the second Adam. In his lifetime, he did a 180 on Adam's model. His model was to harness 
his own masculine spirituality. This was his identity, guys. That's what we're aiming for, that identity. We need to adopt this definition for ourselves as men of the church. Again, our identity. To reject passivity, to accept responsibility, to lead courageously and expect the greater reward, God's reward. The second thing is, I outlined the biblical model for men's ministry in the life of the church. Just as the men in the church need to to regain traction on authentic manhood, we also need to step up and over what I believe is benign neglect, which has crept into the church. Now, benign neglect is is an attitude of ignoring or or an often delicate or undesirable situation that one is held to be responsible for dealing with, benign neglect. We are going to need to be courageously, and with a leader like Roger in the church, you guys are light years ahead of many churches, um, to stand up and confidently implement the model of ministry, the model of ministry. We have the authentic manhood model, now the uh, model for ministry, that he used in his ministry throughout those three years when he was leading ministry. Lee? He called his disciples. He called his disciples, right? Twelve disciples called him. He didn't plead with them. He called them. You all have responded to that call as well. You're in the church. You're the disciples. You, you re- Congratulations. Well done, good and faithful servants. You're here. Second, Jesus trained them. Our diocesan men's ministry vision for the diocese and our churches is equipping today's men to be tomorrow's disciple makers. Equip training is missing ingredient in many churches today. Jesus trained them. Next, he poured into them into 12 men using his ministry model for three years. They watched, they listened, and imitated their master, their mentor, which is what happened to me at Northside United Methodist Church. Let me explain, too, that the the programs that we launched at Church of the Redeemer in Sarasota, I didn't selfishly because I needed that continued formation uh, in the life of the church. And then he sent them on a big, holy, audacious adventure to transform the world, guys. Now, this is really important, okay? Jesus was sending competent, confident, and equipped disciples as disciple makers into the world and proclaimed the Great Commission of Matthew 28, 19. Now, full disclosure... The Great Commission, when I would hear it, I'd break out into a cold sweat. I go to the ends of the earth? I'm not capable of doing that. I did discover Acts 1.8. And I believe Jesus narrowed his sending expectations for most of us. He said, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem which we believe is the home, all Judea, your workplace, and Samaria, your community, and then into the the wider world. 
Now you can see how focused is our model for equipping the men in our churches. Our call to go is doable and on the spot because, again, the home is our number one mission field. Again, Jesus' ministry model was he called them, trained them, poured into them, and sent them. He poured into 12 men using his model. For three years, they watched, listened, and imitated their master, their mentor. (coughs) With my boundless faith and enthusiasm for men's ministry, this calling does not come without significant challenges. And all of the challenges we face, these two challenges are at the forefront. The first one is the social and cultural pushback against masculinity. The self-inflicted confusion about gender which the secular world has brought upon us. The second challenge, as I've mentioned briefly, how, is, is this, how this radical uh, focus on gender has impacted some denominations and ch- churches about masculinity and men in the church. Social norms, benign neglect have created real barriers for men and the church, creating for some an attitude of forlorn hope about men's ministry in the life of our churches. As the title of my book states, Men in the Church is There a Future? Men of Christ the King, is there a future for the men here? Roger believes so, as does most of you. This is where, there is where your church in the diocese, we only look for Jesus. We define authentic manhood as we've done. We seek men who are eager to step into that, and we know a model to do that. Lee? And we come back to this, this model. It's a flywheel. As that wheel continues to turn in the life of the church because it has a weight, at some point, it will begin to turn itself. And that's our goal, is to get this wheel turning in Christ the King.